Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Wheel Barons. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives. And I'm Sam Abual <laughs> Samit from Guidehouse Insights. All right, one of these days I want to go last. Instead okay. of... Uh, <laughs> Let's just switch it up on a bit. Anyway, let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about what we're driving. Rebecca, what have you been in? So it was funny because when I was looking at this, I realized that I had I had, I usually exchange my vehicles on Thursdays, and we're we happen to re- be recording on Thursdays. And last week we had recorded, I think, on Thursday, and I just swapped out my Kona EV. So normally I'm very behind schedule on my reviews, and instead mm-hmm. I'm like almost ahead of schedule right yeah, now we're right on time don't worry we right <laughs> so i went from the hyundai kona ev i went to the audi q7 actually um and this is the 2020 so i audi switched over their meet the company that the agency that does the media drive so our uh, media loans so there was kind of a long lag so this thing had eight thousand miles on it already i was scheduled for it a number of months ago and then i think all the changeover and everything so it was actually you know it's it's i like getting into a car that has a little life on on it you know as opposed to something that's brand brand new but uh when i went to kind of get some specs and everything the 2021 is already up on the audi site but i don't think it's really changed all that much so anyway it has uh it's a 3.0 liter v6 335 horsepower eight speed automatic and you know i i i had the q8 a couple of months ago which I just loved. And while I really liked the Q7, I think it's a great vehicle for a family. It was heavy, if that makes sense. Like <laughs> It felt heavy, you mean? It felt heavy. It didn't have a lot of dynamic driving inputs to it. I did put it in dynamic mode, uh, the Audi Select, which is actually really nice and accessible. But gosh, I just, I wanted it to loosen up a little bit. I felt like, you know, it's like, it's the librarian that's like way too buttoned up. So it's, like, <laughs> it's an uptight family car. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really miss the Q8. But, um, you know, when I think about cars like this, uh, one of the things I always try and do is not think of my, of my lifestyle with this, but think about who should buy this car. And, 
you know, one of the things that we're seeing a lot of is families moving out of the city, out of New York City, for better or for worse. But a lot of families are moving up to this you know, metro New York area out of the city, and they're actually buying cars for the first time, and you know, or in a, or in a long time certainly. And I think that a car like the Q7 is great for that. It's seven passenger. There's plenty of room in there. I like the fact that there's you know it's packed full with technology and safety, and and you know has a great style to it. So that's kind of where I went in my head when I was thinking about this vehicle is that it's a, it's, you know, it's a car that you can really grow into as a family. And um, this had the towing package on it, 7,700 pounds of towing uh, that goes with it. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a great, great family car um, for those people, especially that may be moving out of the city, may not have a car for the first time, you know, or in a long time and lots of safety features on it. You know, the, the lane correction, it did often tell me that I needed to drive in the center of my lane which I don't know if that just <laughs> Audi's. If, if you go on the settings, my driving. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you go on the settings, you can you can change you know the degree of you know prompting and and coaching that you get. Yes, well, I probably sh- I should have done that. I drove it about three hundred miles, uh, but you know the lane departure was actually kind of cool because I. You know, there, you can, especially as we've often talked about, when you're in a new vehicle and you're still trying to learn the buttons, knobs, and switches and everything and where everything is, it's not that it's poorly placed. It's just that we literally have stepped into it and we may not know exactly where everything is. I do like the fact that it has lane centering or, you know, this this one time I was on a two-lane road, nobody was coming, but it corrected, you know, it gently brought me back into the center of the lane. Um, and, and I like that, you know, it's, it does it in a way that's not obtrusive and, and, and keeps you safer, frankly, because it is easy to get distracted in today's world. So uh, I, there was things that, you know, I really liked about it. The infotainment system worked really well. I love all the Audi um, electronics and everything. Nice place for my phone. Uh, you know, it was super quiet, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's a great, I, I thought it was a really, really nice vehicle. The only thing that I didn't love about it was the driving dynamics. I just felt like it was really heavy. Um, and again, I went up and down all the different drive select modes that they have. So this one, it starts at 68,000. The one that I had topped at 86,000. So it's not cheap, uh, but gosh, it's pretty. Well, and it's not, <laughs> I don't it's not supposed to be cheap. It's, it's kind of like the, um, it drives heavy. I it is heavy. <laughs> Have you guys driven that? Have you had that experience? I have not driven, driven the Q7. No, I've okay. driven the the only I've driven the e-tron, which is even heavier. Yeah, but, but actually doesn't really feel quite. It actually feels a little more nimble because the e-tron is actually a little smaller. Yes. Uh, than this, uh, you know, the Q7 is quite large. It yeah. it is. I I drove the. I was on the launch of the Audi e-tron. I'm. And I definitely didn't have that feeling, especially because we got lost in Dubai, and and I, that I wasn't like a driving. Story right there, right. lost in Dubai. That's <laughs> your that's your debut album. <laughs> I wasn't driving, but uh, my colleague was. But but you know, driving Who was through. It? Tell I mean, us. I'm sorry. Who was it? It was Matt Deegan from Kelly Blue Book. Okay. Yes. And he's such a sweetheart. I love Matt. Uh, but I actually know 
the you know I know Dubai fairly well, having lived nearby, and so the the e-tron definitely didn't have that feeling. I thought that was a really really fun car to drive. The other funny thing is that going from the Hyundai Kona EV with that instant torque, I really missed that. It was funny to go. That's interesting. Yeah. Right. Like I, it kind of surprised me because I thought, gosh, you know this. The, the Audi is, is really heavy. I don't know exactly. I'll, I'll try and find out exactly how much it weighs, but you know, 335 horsepower, that's a, that's a good amount. I mean, it's not, it, it's yeah. really not overkill. Well, uh, that, that V6, that's the 90 degree V6, right? That's, that's not, I don't, it's not that torquey. Like it, it's, it's uh, not, yeah. no. it's and, absolutely not that torquey. Yeah. And no. you know, it's a, it's a twin turbo V6, but it's, you know, it's not as, uh, I mean, it's it's fairly responsive, but you know, in a vehicle of that weight, you know, you can you can feel that it's it's working to get up, you know, build up ahead of steam. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and, and, and turbos, like no matter how fast they are, and, and Audi and, and VW is they're very good at making them spool quickly, but there's still that lag off the line. And I do wonder right? if you were to have a little time between the, an EV of any kind and yeah. this vehicle again, if if you'd still sense that that sort of almost like sluggishness or or if you like you say like it might be that you know that that ev torque is really addictive it's it nice really- <laughs> well yeah I'll, I'll, say, I'll say this much you know i just today you know swapped out an audi s5 which i'll talk about next week and s5 sportback okay. um but you know it has basically the same engine but you know in a little higher output it's like 350 horsepower uh, version of the engine in a much in smaller vehicle too. In a much smaller, much lighter vehicle, and it also does not feel like it's going to leap off the line when you you know when you're accelerating off the line. You know it huh. it doesn't it's not it doesn't have that instant responsiveness that you have from an electric motor or a lot of other you know some other gasoline motors. Um, right. So you know I I can and you know I can imagine you know the the Q7 is probably a thousand pounds heavier than that than that s5 and so I, I can see where it would definitely feel maybe a little sluggish off you know in, in its responsiveness yeah it was it was every it was deliberate yeah. is, is what I'll, I'll call it deliberate yeah. as in it was thinking about its next move well, it, a- it just it it required thought like um you know when you drive a vehicle you look at vehicles sometimes and you think does it drive bigger or smaller than it is and yeah. I was always kind of aware that I was in a large vehicle, not just because it has a high driving position, but it, it did. It weighed a lot. It, it weighed a lot. It was a lot to, you know, I enjoy driving it. it, it and, and I actually drove it down into New York City yesterday. And so, you know, it, it, it is, it's nimble for its size, but it's not just nimble, period. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's a good car for, for Manhattan. It's, yeah. uh, how does it how does it ride on those streets? Is it... it was wonderful. I mean, yeah. I I did play. You know, again, I played around with some of the with the drive mode and, and put it in comfort, obviously, for all the potholes and everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, something I'm curious about is um, the infotainment system. You know, I see it's got the same dual screen setup that's in the the e-tron. Um, and does this does the Q7 also have you know the haptic feedback where you, know, you have to actually press a little bit and then you know it feels like it's clicking like a switch yes it does although i don't believe it worked in android auto because there were definitely times when i was like yeah the e-tron's the same way in android auto you just it's just touch there's no haptic feedback right which i do like that the haptic feedback a lot 
Okay. I was just curious what you thought of that. Yeah. To me, it, it was almost, uh, almost, but not quite, you know, a little bit of a throwback to the bad old days of the Blackberry storm. Um, and for anybody that's ever used a storm, I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. I think I had one. <laughs> it, it was so, their first touchscreen phone. It had the clicky screen. So oh you my don't gosh. you don't like the haptic feedback because I think that's one of the things that I miss. I know it's, I no, like a haptic with, feedback. It's, it's like you get a positive response, like you have entered a command. Right. The yeah. thing that I, <laughs> I you know that the haptic feedback can't replace is being able to operate it without looking. without looking. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. and and I, I you know I, I don't mind the haptic feedback. You do have to get used to the fact that you actually do have to press a little bit harder. Yeah. It's not just it's not just a tap on the screen like it is on a typical touchscreen. You actually have to press a little bit. It requires a little right. bit of pressure um, for it to respond, you know. But then you get that feedback, um, and you know, I, I referenced the storm, but I mean, it's nothing like really like the storm. You know, it's it's a it's a much more refined feeling, and the screen is not actually physically moving like it did right. in the storm. <laughs> <laughs> None of those things happen. Yeah. Um, you know, the instrument cl cluster is cool because you can change it and it's, you know, the, oh, the 3D, yeah. like all that. I think the Audi's done just a great job with the technology and it's it's intuitive. I found it to be intuitive. Again, you we go from car to car. You have to get used to the buttons and the switches and such. Uh, but I that, that was not a barrier at all. Okay, cool. So right. I enjoyed it. So Sam... You you spent some time in the Hyundai venue. I did um, spent a week with the Hyundai venue SEL. So unfortunately, not the denim like uh, like Rebecca yes, had. Yes, I love that um, one. <laughs> but uh, you know, this was a, a white SEL. You know, so this is um, in terms of tri you know equipment levels, it's it's comparable, pretty similar to the denim. Um, you know, so it's the higher end version. There's the SE, the SE, and the SEL, and the denim are the three trim levels, uh, and you know. I, I like it. You know, this is, you know, this is, this vehicle is effectively, you know, a replacement for the, the accent hatchback, which, you know, went away with the latest generation of the accent. You know, it kind of takes the place in the lineup, although it is, it is more expensive than the accent. Uh, you know, the starting price on the SE is like 18,750, um, which is, you know, by today's standards is relatively affordable. You know, yeah. it's not, not cheap. Um, you know, and you know, this, it's a little bit smaller than the Kona. Um, you know, it, it lacks some of the features of the Kona. So it's a little bit smaller, cheaper than the Kona. Um, and, uh, you know, it's got uh, front wheel drive only, you know, so it's a crossover, but you know, you can't get all wheel drive in it. It's got a beam axle in the rear, you know, like some others, like the, the Nissan kicks, you know, very similar kind of idea where it fits in the, in the, the lineup. The 2021, though, is showing that it has snow mode, the um, Hyundai venue. That's, yeah, I mean, th and that's Is that probably, new for 2021? Uh, I don't. I know. I, I was remember. sort of caught. I just, I just yeah. pulled it up, and sure. I was caught it, off it, guard it by might, that. It might, it might be. It might be it's new It's an for optional, uh, available on the SCL and denim trim. Snow mode helps the, drive, the driver to drive more effectively on slippery roads, just as snowing or muddy roads. I feel it's, like that might be new. It, it it could be because I don't remember seeing that in here anywhere. I know, uh, yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, that all that all that would be is probably a different set of calibrations that you engage for the stability control. So it's probably right. a little more, 
you know, tight, tightens up the slip threshold so it intervenes a little sooner uh, to try and keep you from getting into trouble and in slippery conditions. Um, so, you know, that would definitely be a good thing. But even, you know, even as it is, you know, just front-wheel drive, you know, it's it's a great daily driver. Uh, you know, the seats are comfortable. It's roomy. You know, even though, you know, it's a little bit smaller uh, than the Kona, um, you know, the back seat, you know, I was able to, you know, set the front, the driver's seat where I would normally have it. I got in the back seat. I had some clearance for my knees, you know, and I'm 5'11". Um, you know, my head was not touching the ceiling. So, you know, it was, it was, it's comfortable for four adults. Uh, you know, three, if three, if you, in the back, if you, you know, if they're fairly sl- slender, but you're not social um, distancing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, certainly for four adults, it works. You know, you got 19 cubic feet of cargo space behind the seat. So, you know, it's it's a really good all around daily driver, you know, not particularly performant, you know, only 121 horsepower, but it's 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 more than adequate. It's plenty of it's plenty of power. It's got plenty of performance because it only weighs 2,700 pounds. Plenty of performance, you know, for accelerating to merge into highway traffic, things like that does have a CVT, uh, but Hyundai does a pretty nice job. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel too much like a CVT. It's not, it's not particularly noisy. It's relative. It's surprisingly quiet really for, for what it is. Yeah. The plastics are, are hard in the interior and most, most of the interior, but But they look good though, don't they? They they look good. Yeah. Nicely textured, uh, you know, no sharp edges, no flash marks that are visible, you know, so it all looks like it's nicely executed. Uh, you know, and the, the SEL that I had, you know, had the optional sunroof, um, the uh, uh, package with the uh, sliding armrest uh, storage box and the leather wrapped steering wheel and shift knob, uh, blind spot monitoring with cross traffic alert, which is always a good thing to have, you know, in the premium package, uh, heated front seats, um, the uh, LED headlamps uh, and tail lamps, and uh, it had the uh, Eight-inch uh, navigation touchscreen. So even even in the SE, the the base setup, you know, you still get an eight-inch screen, uh, eight-inch touchscreen. And Hyundai, you know, always does really good screens. They're they're very high-quality screens, very legible, um, you know, good good contrast, and they and they don't get washed out in sunlight, uh, and they're visible with with sunglasses on. So, you know, this one had the optional navigation, um, but. You know, you can you can always forgo that and came to twenty three thousand four hundred five, including delivery charge. So, you know, I think, a, you know, a really good value. Wait, how much was twenty three four, including delivery? That's, that's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> sure. It's a nineteen eight. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think I love how many safety features they put in this that you don't have to check every box, you know, that it comes out of the box. It comes really well equipped, I think. Yeah. I, you get- Forward collision alert, lane keeping assist, um, blind spot. Uh, the blind spot monitoring oh. is part of the is uh, part of the premium package. Blind or, spot sorry, collision warning. Uh, or the, sorry, it's part I of the get, I'm package. looking at a 2021, so it may they may have added, oh, okay. but rear cross traffic warning. I mean, yeah. those are just like nice. Th- those are those are good things to. Uh, they're kind of like a reward. I feel like you know, like we're going to take care of 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 you whether you're spending yeah and, and, and fortunately the industry as a whole is moving in this direction of making a lot of those driver assist features standard equipment yeah uh, even yeah. even on entry-level models like this so yeah. you know i think that's you know that's a great trend you know I'm, I'm glad to see it happen you know so things like automatic emergency braking and collision avoidance and you know i think those, those are all really good features to have um and it's it's good that they're doing it yeah absolutely all right 
right. Dan. Well, so I was driving another uh, small SUV. This one, this one from was from Kia. Uh, mm-hmm. I tried the Seltos X uh, SX Turbo all-wheel drive. Basically, the most loaded Kia Seltos you could get, um, which rang up just under thirty thousand dollars. And it's it, it's again, it's a pretty good value for that price. Um, it's really a design masterpiece. I just loved looking at this car. It outside and in, there's just clever details everywhere. You know, the, the metal around the grill has this, this, this pattern that is, you know, stamped into it, but it, it, uh, sort of fades as it gets to areas where it has to curve and, and stuff around like the lights and, and the, the grill opening and stuff. So it's just really nicely detailed and that extends into the interior the shapes uh of the the dashboard and the the controls and everything all look very premium uh and like like with the venue the plastics and stuff the materials look good some of them are hard but they're pleasing to the eye and i, I think that's important you know it, it, it looks premium it looks like a million bucks um I was a little disappointed. Or at least a, at least a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, I would say a hundred thousand. I was a little disappointed that the driving experience didn't quite live up to it. You know, it drove like a, you know, twenty thousand dollar car because that's exactly what it is. You know, it's just it was just fine. It's honest in its driving experience, but uh, it, you know, it's it's a little loud on the road. It, you can hear the suspension doing doing its thing. Sometimes there was some noise from the, from the back. I couldn't ever find it, you know, whether I didn't know what it was, you know, it seemed like maybe torsion on the body would make the, uh, the, um, the hatch make a little noise here and there. Uh, I, I'm not sure. And, and sometimes press cars do that cause they are treated mercilessly. So <laughs> don't, don't take that for anything other than like, I noticed a little noise in this particular one, uh, for for certain things, um, I, and, I and as a press car, it's more than likely that the what you were driving was actually a pre production model. Yeah, it, it could be, and it's not uncommon. Um, you know, I didn't notice it like out on the road, but it's not uncommon when I when I, there are cars where I'll back them in and out of the driveway or something, and and just the the combination of going over the the driveway apron and having the wheel turned and stuff, it sets up torsion in the in the structure. And even my Jeep, I can hear you know, I can hear stuff move a little bit. That's not uncommon it's it's normal it's just sometimes you hear a little more than the others and it just made me made me wonder what was going on um but it it drives like a twenty thousand dollar car which is not necessarily um an insult to it it's a very honest driving experience like i said it it it, uh, feels good and actually if you were to drive it in sport mode uh and you can nudge the shifter over into to sport mode as well um the SX Turbo has a, a seven-speed dual-clutch transmission. It all gets pretty responsive, and because it's the SX Turbo, it also has a multi-link rear suspension versus a beam axle that the, some of the lower trims have. Um, it'll it'll go around corners and stuff. Its limits are pretty low, but it'll it'll do your bidding in a in a pretty trusty manner. Uh, so it feels like it was it was tuned well, which is not the case for um kia models sort of going back right they they would have everything there on paper and then you'd you'd try to drive it and and make use of that capability it would just dynamically fall apart so they've made progress there it's it's really pleasant to drive i liked it quite a bit um other than the road noise (laughs) you know i i found it to be uh kind of loud but 
um you know the the turbo engine has 175 horsepower 195 pound-feet of torque from a uh, 1.6 liters so we've we've driven this engine in a bunch of other stuff before uh it's good it's smooth it sounds good it works really well with the the transmission i i would have liked to try it with the the cvt um but I think that would have limited me to the, the two liter that you get in trims like the S yeah. and the uh, whatever. I think the, let's see, uh, LX and maybe the EX. I forget where the turbo comes in. It's it's optional pretty largely across the board too. So um, the, the ride. Front wheel oh, driver, I'm sorry. Which is front wheel drive or all wheel drive? Uh, this is all wheel drive. All wheel drive in this one. Okay. It was, it was all wheel drive. Um, okay. And it was it was it was good. It has all the the ADAS, which is pretty unobtrusive. The lane centering isn't great. Uh, it gets the steering gets a little notchy, and um, I, I thought it was pretty funny when I was you know, driving it on some back roads. Uh, it, it, it did you ever get that indicator that lights up, but the car is like, "Hey, you should stop for a while." Yeah, <laughs> that never happens. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Yeah. 15 minutes into my driving. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, you, you must be tired. Take a break. <laughs> um, so I got that a few times, uh, which is totally my fault. And I love that it's there. It just cracks me up when it comes up. It's like, I am more awake right now, Buster. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you, know, you know, it has adaptive cruise, has lane centering, blind spot monitoring, the forward collision alert, uh, all of its, you know, that's that's a pretty good suite of stuff for a vehicle that, that rings up under 30 grand. It's roomy. The back seat is pretty good. When, you know, I set my my front seat where I wanted it, I felt like there was quite quite a bit of space uh, to sit behind myself. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a really good uh vehicle for its segment it has a lot of competition um and it's it's going to attract people who like the style uh but i i think that you know even the rav4 or the crv are probably a little quieter and and um mm. that might sway some people because i i feel like that's that's what lets it down is just the the driving experience that's a little stiff need a little um uh a little less plush than you might think looking at it versus and 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 that that road noise versus something that's a little softer and a little quieter that just by that very nature can feel a little bit more uh luxurious or just sort of well put together um but overall like you know Hyundai and Kia they're just killing it i just i loved looking at the car i i loved sort of just all the details that they they put in it and that really for me, like I would, I would find myself like rinsing the coffee cup, just staring out the window at it. Like, oh, that's a really interesting detail. So, um, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a good looking little vehicle. Yeah, and and you know we're we're in this place right where, okay, cars are kind of you know sedans and coupes and whatever they're kind of going away, but that doesn't mean that you can't have have vehicles that are enjoyable. And then you know I, I really enjoyed the the restraint and the maturity of the design there's not a lot of gingerbread on it so mm-hmm. i i think that's great uh and it, it got 26 and a half miles per gallon which isn't isn't terrible um and it it is a really good all-arounder you know in the same way that like a forester is a really good all-arounder it's not it's i don't think it's quite as roomy as a forester but it's it's got a lot more panache <laughs> No, it does. I think it's um, so. Nicole Wakeland, uh, who I think we know, she writes for um, my site, 
Sam, yeah. what's the site? RebeccaDrives.com. Thank you. <laughs> Well, right now she's on the Rebel Rally, isn't she? Or is she she uh, is on the yeah. Rebel Rally, yeah. but she wrote this Kia Seltos review that's on the site. She and probably she, drove the same one. It's she probably like, did drive yeah. the same one. She's and she in like cites New Hampshire. A, uh, right. And she cites a lot of the same things that you said about it. I, I think the one that I had was like a total pre-production. It didn't even have, I think we talked about this one. It didn't have a press, a push button start. Like it, like I tried to build it and you can't actually build it. But um, the way, the, the way oh, that yeah, it this, was configured, it was. This one had a, it definitely had a push button start and the infotainment is good. You know, yeah. infotainment is, is quite good. So yeah, no, that's very good. Um, but no, she, she cites a lot of the same things, but the one thing that struck me is while you were speaking is that the top trim actually tops out at, $32,000, which I seems really, really high. I mean, it starts at 23, but well, you can, well, you can 23 with, with destination, right? What's destination? Cause, um, uh, it's destination has to be almost a thousand dollars. Yeah. It's over a thousand. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can certainly chart this thing venue. up. Yeah. You, you can chart this baby up to 32,000. So, right. Uh, but no, she said a, a lot of the same things, uh, that you did, you know, to, nice and roomy um and the one point she had the one the 1. 1.6 liter so yeah it's yep. probably the same yeah it, 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 did she give you pictures no she uh, didn't unfortunately i had yeah i guarantee you it's the same car <laughs> um uh but you know the, i did miss um paddle shifters it doesn't have paddle shifters it has a has a manual mode that's decently responsive but um it also shifts it won't it won't uh won't bounce off the rev limiter at red line, so it'll shift for you, which okay. is which is fine. You know, it's not slushy about it, but right. um, it, it's just it, interesting to see where they've made the the compromises. And I think they've made the right ones overall. Um, you know, it, it, that's really what I, I sort of walked away with was saying, you know, there's there's compromises that they clearly made to bring this vehicle in. I didn't find it terribly expensive at thirty k, like. It didn't have a sunroof, um, which it, you mm -hmm. may be able to add and, and drive the price up a little bit more. But it it, it was very well equipped. Yeah. And you could definitely, in the lower trims, get all of the value or, you know, the value goes up because you're not really going to miss a, a lot of the stuff that the the SX Turbo had. Um and you'll you'll save some cash. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be just about as friendly, uh, even with the the beam axle, you know, which is uh, in the in the lower trims and the the less powerful engine. I don't really mm -hmm. think you you give up a lot. the The powerful engine is nice, but it's not that powerful. So, right. Well, as you say, it doesn't weigh a ton. So yeah. the two point liter four cylinder and versus the one point six liter turbo, it's a different experience, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think the 1.6 is, you know, it's a little smaller displacement-wise. It might be a little smoother. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is a smooth engine. It, it, it doesn't sound bad when you you um, you let it run out to redline or anything. So uh, it's not one of those four-cylinders that just uh, lets you know it, it's unhappy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like the Honda four-cylinder now does, does not sound good. Uh, this this one sounds good. So, uh, so. yeah, it's, it's, it's a solid vehicle. Um, the, the really, I and I, it's funny because I stepped into a rogue, uh, a brand new rogue, uh, this week. I've only had it a couple of days, but my my first impression was like, damn, it's quiet in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got the new 21 I, rogue. I love this yeah. size of vehicle though, I think it's it's perfect for you know somebody that wants a small SUV, doesn't want the 
you know, the larger versions of these. I just, I love that there's so much choice in this space. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really easy to get in and out of because it's a little bit yes. higher off the ground. This, the, you know, in yep. the higher trim, it's got the, the LED lights that are very good. So it's it's one of those things it's like yeah it's another winner there's things to criticize about it but there's things to criticize about everything else in the segment too so um <laughs> and, and we really have to pick a lot of nits you know to find yeah. those things in most cases on on many of these vehicles yeah, yeah no, for sure um you know it it is it it would be nice for for sort of the full boat to have have stuff like shift paddles have a sunroof um you know but again it's like where they save the money and they probably made the right choices to save the money and bring it in for for uh, a price that uh, is a little bit more palatable. So. Well, one one thing that's interesting that I've noticed, you know, uh, especially this past week, you know, is getting, you know, these smaller and smaller slices of the market, you know. So in the compact crossover market, you know, you've got the, the small compact, you know. So there's the subcompact stuff like the, like the, like the venue uh, and the Kona. And then there's the small end of the compact market, which is where you find things like the Mazda CX-30 mm. and the Seltos. Um, and then, you know, the, the upper end of, of that segment, you know, where you get into the CRV and RAV4 and Escape and, and that. And, you know, just this week, you know, there was another new entry in this small compact with the, the VW the Taos. Yes. And we can talk about that a little more next week. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Taos, you know, is in that same size class. It's actually just slightly bigger. It's like 175 inches long versus 173 for, for the Saltos. There's 172 and 173 for the CX-30, you know. But um, it's it's interesting how they're getting these smaller and smaller niches that they're filling, you know. And, you know, having the pricing go along with that size as you go up in size, the price, you know, you're getting a little more premium, a little, you know, a little pricier. Um, and you know, so like the, the Taos fits right in this same segment, you know, in terms of size and, and pricing. Yeah, no, that's a great call for sure. Yeah. Well, and it's not like they, it, it, it's a fully new vehicle. They've gotten very good at taking platforms and, and making them slightly, slightly bigger, slightly smaller, you know, I mean, look yeah. at BMW, BMW is trying to fill all the white space. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's gonna for be better for worse. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you know, VW is a, a perfect example. You know, they've got their MQ, MQB architecture, which is really more of a a toolkit. You know, a, a a bin of parts that they can mix and match in all kinds of different ways, and they use MQB for everything from the Polo, which is their subcompact hatchback that they sell in <laughs> Europe, all the way up to the Atlas, and everything wow. in between <laughs> is crazy. all based off MQB. That's crazy. Yeah. So oh, that's um, impressive. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we had a we had a pretty good run of cars this week. Yeah. So we're joined right now by uh, Jonathan Klinger from Haggerty Insurance. Jonathan joins us uh, from all the way out on the you're like way on the the, the lakeside over uh, as about as far as you can get from yeah. Detroit. That's right. Yeah. And, At least in, in the, the lower, lower peninsula. peninsula. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. So so the real thanks. question is, where are you on the mitten? Well, oh, you're um, the pinky. yeah, the, we are the pinky. Yep. 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 That's the, that's the famous thing. Hold up your hand and we are between the pinky and the index finger. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how you know that you're talking to a real Michigander, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> 
Uh, all right, so you're here to talk to us about what the state of state of the market, or what, what do you want to talk about, Jonathan? Hey, anything anything in the fun to drive category, but uh, I mean, just like everybody, it's 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 been an interesting year, right? I bet. <laughs> why don't Why don't we start off with you know what Haggerty is? Because you know, I mean, Haggerty is just not your average car insurance company. You you guys are different. So, I thought they were a content shop now. <laughs> well, there's that too. I mean, so. Jonathan, you know, why don't you tell us tell us about Haggerty first? Let's set the stage with that, and then we can dive into some of the other stuff. Yeah, and and I'll take a couple of minutes to just give a brief synopsis of the history because I think that I find that fascinating. So so Frank Haggerty uh, moved to Traverse City, and in 1956, he as a young person st- opened a State Farm insurance agency. So he was like your local insurance agent, and in the late 70s had the opportunity to sell. And so kind of found himself in a midlife retirement and didn't work for a couple of years. He was always a car guy, always liked restoring uh, classic boats. And so for a couple of years, he got a chance to focus on some projects that he had lingering out behind the garage, like many of us do. (laughs) And when he was working on these vintage wooden boats, he discovered that no one, and this is in the early 80s, no one would insure a wooden boat. And the, the insurance industry collectively looked at wood boats as nothing more than uh, floating pieces of firewood filled with gas. That's exactly <laughs> what they are. And, a claim waiting to happen. Exactly. And, and Frank's argument was, wait a minute. Those of us that are crazy enough to use these things, we're probably the most careful of any boat owner out on the water. So why wouldn't you insure them? And so what happened was there was this unmet need out there and he took his years of experience of, of being an insurance agent and, and got an underwriter to back him and, and launched what in the early days in 1984 precisely was the Haggerty Classic Marine Insurance Agency. And, uh, and all they did was specialize in insuring wood boats until 1991. You know, as they were slowly growing, there was many owners of classic wooden boats that also had classic cars. And they're like, well, could you do this? And so then that was what started into the classic car. And then, of course, now, you know, fast forward all these years later, we still do insure wooden boats, but that's about 2% of the business. And this was all up in Traverse City, or did all he expand? All up in Traverse City. Okay. Well, it started in Traverse City in the basement of their house, uh, you know, hand-stuffing envelopes for the ha- annual renewals. Actually, that house is less than three miles from where I'm sitting right now. That's cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and so it's it's a fascinating beginning that, that how this happened. And, uh, um, yeah. And so now, you know, fast forward, Haggerty is the largest insurer of, of classic collectible and enthusiast vehicles, and that, that's from a global standpoint. And then in more recent years, uh, we've really aggressively grown uh, our magazine, Haggerty Drivers Club magazine, and, and all the content that surrounds that. And then also, um, for more than a decade now, uh, have published the Haggerty Price Guide. So... Think of it, you know, you, you're used to the Kelly Blue Book or the NADA guide. This is uh, the value, valuation guide for the most commonly traded collector vehicles. So, so it's not what? a general market guide. It's just, no. it's okay. Yeah. But you do keep track, though, of the of the market. 
and what's going on in the new and used car market. We do, we do, and, and we're always adding new vehicles to the Haggerty Price mm. Guide, uh, but it's it's focused on enthusiast-oriented vehicles. So there's so, vehicles that are brand new on there, but again, it, it's not your typical daily, regular use vehicles that you're right. gonna find. So what do you think has been the biggest change, you know, during COVID in terms of classic cars and in terms of, of collectibles and has the market gone up or down or stagnant? Just tell us, I'm really curious about that. Well, the, the market is, has been fascinating. So the biggest changes, um, and this probably won't surprise any of us, is people are driving more. Uh, so people have, it, specifically to their classic collector vehicles. You know, well, they're uh, driving more for pleasure as opposed yes. to for yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, people, many people have found more time at home than, <laughs> than you know, prior to this year. <laughs> we could all agree to that. But, uh, you know, think even in the depths of the shutdowns uh, in, in the early days of the pandemic, when, when people were truly being isolated at home, if just think of your, you know, a, a, a family, so a, a married couple and maybe some kids still at home. And if all of a sudden both working spouses are now working from home and you're leaving the house once or twice a week and only one of you are going to the grocery store, if you've got the minivan and the SUV and the Corvette sitting in the garage and it's just you, what are you going to take? You're probably well, going to take the Corvette. I, would, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, uh, probably the minivan to get the groceries. And you take a scenic route so to the grocery practical. store, you know, drive you know, 30 or 40 <laughs> yeah. miles you know, out in the countryside. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's, it's true because it's like, look, you can only stare at the four walls for so long. And it's like this, this little bit of solace, especially if you're all uh, kind of on top of each other. I don't know how big of a house you actually need to not feel like you're on top of each other, but I don't have it. And, uh, so it's like, it's like driving or like the bathroom are the two times you get alone time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and, and there has been multiple studies where, where people select that, uh, undeniably the second most safest place they feel is in their car. So the safest they feel is in their home, their dwelling, and the second most uh, secure place is, is in their own car. And if you're looking for an escape from the home, you're gonna get your car and drive somewhere and, and just drive somewhere for fun. So it, it, in some ways, you know, despite all of the turmoil with the pandemic, uh, the fact that people have rediscovered the joy of just going for the, the Sunday drive or, uh, you know, taking a more scenic route to your end of destination. I think that's kind of a good thing for the car hobby that's going to come out of this. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember I having my, my media car was uh, Bentley of all things. And there was, you know, there was no traffic and we could go across the bridge, the Tappan Zee bridge at five o'clock in the, in the afternoon. I mean, it was amazing to not have any constraints on leaving your house. You know, when you left your house, it, you didn't have to factor in ways anymore and computer and, you know, the commute and, and I loved it. I mean, I really, it's, I'm thankful that, you know, people are coming back to work, but gosh, that was fun. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know something, and, and we can dedicate an entire episode just to <laughs> just to 
what I'm about to say, but th this is a trend that's been happening for the past five years or a little more, but is continuing to accelerate is, you know, to your point, you had a Bentley as a press car. Um, modern brand new cars are, are just continue to get better and better. I mean, mm. yes, there's little nuances that we can pick at, but they continue to get better and better. And, and just before we started recording, we were debating, you know, the hypothetical, would you rather have a GT350 or GT500 in your garage? They're both amazing cars, <laughs> especially for what they cost, you know, the performance of the dollar. So what we have been watching and, and witnessing for several years now on the enthusiast side is there's an awful lot of long time collectors. So people would have the vehicles you would expect to see in their garages, uh, a muscle car from the 60s and 70s, some great European sports car, you know, throughout their life have these cars have multiplied as they kind of get to, you know, post retirement years, two, three, four of those cars are being sold and they're buying one or two really cool modern performance cars because oh, interesting. they're just so good. Yeah. They're good and they have a warranty and they have working air conditioning and, and all of that. And and you know I, the, the the disclaimer I'll put out there, I'm not disparaging old cars at all. I mean I I'm a huge diehard fan of old cars. The oldest I currently own is 1930. Um, wow. but modern cars are really, really darn good uh, from an enthusiast standpoint. Yeah, they are. You know, when back last December, when Ford was doing the media drive for the GT500 out in Las Vegas, you were out there. Uh, you'd brought out uh, the '67 GT500 from the the Haggerty collection, and we went for a drive in that. You know, I I had been driving the 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 new GT500 uh, earlier that morning, and then we went out for you know for a short little drive in the '67, and it's you know as good as the '67 was in its time. You know, compared to any modern car, you know, it was totally, oh. I mean, the brakes and the steering were terrible. <laughs> you know, it wasn't anywhere near as fast, you know, and, you know, if you, you know, hit anything, you know, you're likely <laughs> to die. But Well, and the, the FE's not exactly a rever either, right? Like the... Oh, no, and it's yeah. heavy, too. Yeah. <laughs> heavy up front. I bet it looked and sounded pretty damn good, though. Oh, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> but... Yeah, we you know, I, I still like driving those driving old cars. You know, it's you know, it's it's not, you know, from a purely objective standpoint, yeah, they're not anywhere near as good as a modern car, but uh, you know, from a from a subjective standpoint, and the visceral experience of driving a car like that, you know, is it's something totally different. Well, even when we were in your Miata, you know how we talked about this before, you sit like the belt line is so much lower that I remember when I, when we first got on the highway and I was like, wow, I feel like I'm halfway out of the car, <laughs> like, yeah. but it just added to the whole experience of being in that classic, you know, sports car kind of feel. And, and as opposed to like the Lexus LC 500, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous convertible, but you know, you're sitting even lower or, or even, um, you know, the new Miata, I mean, which is again, fabulous, but you sit lower in it. And so you don't have that same sort of feeling of, of be really being exposed, you know, for better or for worse, but no, the Miata, the original Miata is just such a classic still. You're absolutely right. You, 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 not only do you sit lower, but the, but the, you know, the body, the belt line, it, it's higher. Um, right. And, and it's all, and, and mostly driven by, 
the the superior crash test ratings that that modern vehicles have, but it has shrunk the greenhouse of yes. what you have in, in today's cars. And pillars are so much thicker, and that's why you have all these blind spot warning indicators. Right. Um, but yeah, you, you even get into uh, uh, a vehicle from the late 90s and early 2000s compared to new cars. And you're like, wow, this is like a glass dome. Yeah. Look at all yeah. this. Right. Like my, my, my elbow is not at my ear when I put my arm <laughs> yeah. on the door. Uh, so I have a, I have a question. Um, and, and so first, do you guys do RV insurance? We do not yet. Okay. Um, yes. As far, vintage RVing. Uh, that is something that we have looked in and, uh, it is, it is something that will come in the future. Because, yeah. Cause again, it, vintage RV and that, that's a growing trend. Right. That's, uh, and yeah. especially now, like I, I, I found it really interesting to watch and I, like everybody had this collective urge all at once. Um, we we're all just like, I, I want a damn RV. <laughs> for this well, summer. I mean, but I to his earlier somewhere. point, like that's right. We're, right we're all trapped at home yeah and and, so, and you can't like everything is closed so you got to stay like, here in massachusetts like we were we couldn't go to maine they were they were closed unless we had tests and stuff like that so you you wind up going well okay i've got a quarantine somewhere so you kind of want to just go somewhere else and still you know not necessarily take vacation but work from home so everybody bought rvs this summer and that's right they were everybody was sold out and then the idea of the the vintage RV was like, well, they're they're cool, they're really quaint on the inside. You can restore them, and they, they you know, especially if it's something like an Airstream, they still hold their value. So it, it's just uh, I, I see it as a rising trend, and it just sort of took off this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a um, one of the groups, anyways, that that has a, a pretty significant national footprint is are the tin can tourists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you know, all the vintage RVers that meet up at different campgrounds and have, have, uh, well, I would say cruisins. I don't know if that's the proper term for, forgive me if I'm, if I'm, if I'm butchering this in, in the We're gonna get hate term. mail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, but the thing is, is, you know, I've just had just a, you know, a, a, a surface introduction into that world and, uh, uh, you want to talk about a group of enthusiasts that takes the full experience. You know, not only do they have these either wonderfully preserved or very well restored vintage RVs, it's it, the furniture, what they set out outside of their trailer. I mean, everything is very era appropriate. Uh, some people are cooking recipes from that era, and it's oh, just so like they eat a lot of spam. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. This is when margarine was revolutionary, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. And martinis, <laughs> yeah, margarine that you have to like mix the food coloring in. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the, you know the GM RVs too, the the GMCs yes. the, with the, the Toronto powertrain. Yeah, the front drive ones. Yes, that that is one I would want. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. A neighbor down the street um, who moved away um, last fall actually uh, bought or had one of those GMC uh, motorhomes uh, that they got a couple of years ago. It was it was in their driveway for a while, and I mean those things are. I was from the time I was a kid, I always thought those were the coolest looking RVs. And I, at one point, I actually had a Hot Wheels one of those. Yeah, I have the Matchbox. I repainted yeah. it once when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, they, they were really ahead of their time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no. And, and, you know, they're not gigantic. 
you know, it's not a 45 foot motor coach with a steerable tag axle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, the first time you and I met Jonathan was a few years ago <clears throat> when you were competing in, or participating in the great race and stopped off here in, uh, in uh, Ypsilanti um, on this, this race from uh, Florida to Traverse city. And, you were driving a really amazing car on that race, the, the Green Dragon. The Green Dragon, yes, the 1917 Peerless. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, with a, um, with a Peerless V8, so one of the early uh, V8 engines from a production U.S. production car. And uh, it was, yes, absolutely love that car. Um, it's uh, So Peerless, I, I don't know if you've heard this term, the three Ps of luxury. But in the teens through the 20s, that was, uh, I don't know if you call it slang, but three Ps of luxury referred to um, Packard, Peerless, and Piercera. Hmm. So three American auto manufacturers that focus on luxury. Peerless, they, where they absolutely excelled was in the mechanics. They put an awful lot of effort into that V8 engine. That, that came out uh, in 1916, shortly after Cadillac's V8 engine. Uh, they, so it was a very well-balanced, smooth-running, reliable V8, uh, and the cars drove very well. What they did not focus on nearly as much as other luxury automakers at the time was styling. So a stock peerless automobile, it was pretty... You know, there, there was nothing extraordinary about its styling. It looked like an awful lot of other cars on the road, but they were they were powerful. They were very reliable. They were smooth running. And, you know, I have to believe that, of course, an awful lot of automakers died off shortly before the Depression. But the fact that they didn't put an emphasis on styling, especially through the 20s, the exciting days of the roaring 20s, uh, certainly had to contribute to their demise. But... This this 1917 Peerless makes for a wonderful, wonderful cross country rally car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seeing that thing, you know, you're sitting way up high, completely out in the open, and that thing uh, that that would have been an amazing ride to go a couple of thousand miles in. Yes, yeah, you feel every every ounce of weather. Um, but uh, let's see if I can pull up a photo here, at least for the four of us to see it. But. Uh, um, but yeah, but it's, you know, the funny thing was, is uh, everything is all relative. So here's a car that's more than 100 years old in the Great Race, which is a cross-country uh, time, speed, distance, endurance rally. And every day there was official lunch stop and, and overnight evening stops. And of course, they would draw crowds like what you saw, Sam. And uh, they, you know, a lot of people come up and see this open cockpit uh fenderless car and they'd say man how fast does this thing go <laughs> and, and when i would say 65 they would be like what <laughs> listen it feels like 300 <laughs> exactly exactly and uh, um you know allegedly it went 90 i never drove at 90 and i have and i and i don't think unless i don't think i ever would drive at 90 but, uh, um so yeah so but, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was saying is, uh, yeah, it's uh, so it's 80 horsepower, 330 <laughs> cubic inches, 80 horsepower, um, very torquey engine, heavy flywheel, 
low, uh, compression, five and a half to one compression ratio. So very low crank start. Uh, it does have electric start. Okay. You could, you could crank start it. Um, but I very much appreciated the electric start <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and it worked 99% of the time. Um, well, you know, the, the crank starting is like, that's a, that's a lost art. Um, you know, it's it's not just as simple as turning the crank. You have to know where to set the timing and and yes. set the throttle. And you have to know actually where where compression is because you it'll break your arm if you're not careful. That's right. That's right. So one of the cooler experiences, and this absolutely was a bucket list thing for me. So yeah, you can see the car here. Um, and you see that V8 engine. It, interestingly enough, uh, cast aluminum crankcase with cast iron cylinder jugs doesn't have oh, a head. Wow. It was a whole jug, kind of like on a uh, more recent snowmobile engine. But uh, yeah, just a neat, neat car. 33-inch oh. wheels. And we're, <laughs> is that all original paint and color? So like green this and the yellow? Was, um, no. So this okay. car started out life as a, as a passenger car, you know, probably a, a touring or sedan body. And at some point in the 20s, it was converted into a board track racer, okay. not driven by anybody famous that we know of or in any sort of famous race. It would be like any one of us, you know, modifying our uh, late model Miata and doing some amateur racing. This was that equivalent in the 20s. And in the 30s, it was tucked away into a barn and then it sat in the barn until the late 80s. And uh, wow. the previous owner of this car, John Hollinsworth, a uh, great car collector down in Hot Springs, Village, Arkansas, uh, he found it. He was a uh, he liked doing these cross country road rallies, and the racing body that was on it when he found it, which was really really crude to begin with, it was just it was too far gone. So that's mm -hmm. a rebody. That's okay. a rebody in the '90s, uh, and it was customized to be a little bit more convenient for driving cross country, a little bit more storage space. Um, of course, it's all relatively speaking. It yeah. still has hardly any storage space, but <laughs> it has more <laughs> than it would have. And, uh, and But uh, mechanically, that engine, the transmission, the chassis, that's all from 1917, and it was rebuilt. That's cool. Wow. Yeah. I love the leather straps too. Keep it that's all right. together. Yeah, yeah. Keep it so, so you're talking about crank starting. I had a, uh, and this for me, loving early, early cars and, and early automotive history. I participated in the, in the uh, London and Brighton veteran car run in England last November. And uh, if you're, if you're not familiar with that event, it is the longest running motoring racing event um the newest the car can be is 1904. oh my so gosh the newest the, uh, the vehicle that you can enter is 1904. and uh, uh there was three of us that piloted a 1903 knox knox uh, yeah. it was an american car built in massachusetts and uh, it has has a single cylinder engine and so yes that was you know talk about starting and knowing exactly where compression is and and uh but you cer certainly is a sense of accomplishment if you do everything right and it and it it, it lights off on the first current was that a was that a three-wheeler or was that a four four-wheeler it was a four-wheeler but uh it's still you know this is 
the nickname horseless carriage, you know, it exists for a reason because it, it looks like the horse just simply ran away. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this it literally looks like a carriage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the old, the old stuff is cool. I remember the, like, uh, you know, the old Marine ratchet engines that they, they didn't have a reverse gear. They, you just spin it the other way. That's right. <laughs> if you get good at it, you could bounce it off compression backwards. So yeah. if you wanted to go forward, you just, bounce the fly with and it would you know it they're, they're neat toys and so the old stuff is really really fascinating um, well, so, well it, it's an experience in itself yeah it's, uh, tell it, us a little bit about um your year driving the ford model a as your daily driver yeah so it's hard <laughs> oh to that's believe. a modern car it's i mean it's, it's got a roof and everything <laughs> a, a windshield wiper yeah <laughs> one one yeah. wiper yeah. one wiper yeah i call it a swiper um, <laughs> yeah so it's hard to believe that 10 years ago this month is when i when i started doing that so um from uh october of 2010 till october of 2011 uh, I parked my modern vehicles and the only car that I drove daily for straight 365 days was a 1930 Ford Model A two-door sedan. And uh, it was just before I turned 30. Actually, the day that I ended this uh, 365 days was on my 30th birthday. Which was October what? October 5th. Oh, interesting. Yeah. My, my birthday is October 13th. Well, there you go. Yeah, some fellow Libras so, here. Fellow Libras. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, and so kind of the the whole reason for that was just uh, just to kind of prove that old cars can be driven, they are reliable, and and really, you know, if you think back ten years ago, there was just this exponential growth in. Uh, television and online programming for in the vintage car space that so much of it was focused on the sale of the vehicle you know how yeah. much you could you know how much something sold for or how much you could buy something and flip it for and of course what makes for good television is is uh the the higher dollar figures you know six and seven figures and, and beyond and i just kind of wanted to prove that you know you could do that you don't have to have hundred thousand dollars sitting in a checking account to go buy a vintage car and so this was i bought it off a craigslist from an elderly couple in indiana paid eleven thousand dollars for it the whole idea was gonna buy it drive it for a year then sell it for the same amount of money um but then of course you put seventeen thousand miles on it and have it in seven states and drive it every day through the winter and yeah, we kind of bonded together, so it, it is it is still part of my world. It did not get sold. <laughs> um, but I also heard that you inspired a young man from Australia to. Well, I it, it's uh, th this has been the heartwarming part of it, and actually, I just recently received an email from a from a I guess he'd be twenty two now young guy from Germany saying that he said, I was 12 years old when you did the 365 days of A and I read your blog. Um, my parents did not support my interest in old cars, um, but he just bought in Germany a 1930 Model A and he's driving it That's know, 10 awesome. years later. And I thought, I mean, it just like, when I got that, when I received that email and, and, and I just received it, I haven't actually responded to him. I, I, I mean, it actually kind of, I choked up. It was just like, oh my gosh. Like, um, and it was just all about sharing the experience of, 
uh, it sounds cliche, but sharing the experience of life in the slow lane, you know, taking, taking the more scenic, interesting route to get to your destination and, you know, kind of taking time to enjoy the world around you because the world at 47 miles an hour is a lot different than 75. <laughs> and the reason I say 47 is because 47 miles an hour was the absolute sweet spot for that car. All the sounds and vibrations harmonize at 47. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah. like, I, I choke up when I get reader email too, because like, you know, somebody read the thing I wrote. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's, um, but the, you know, the, the A is, it's one of those things that, you know, people feel really far away from the, the older cars. And I think one of the things that, that drives that is stuff like the Model T was made for, for so long. But really, once you get into the 30s, the cars are quite, quite similar to what you'd expect now. There's, I mean, there's a few different controls, uh, but especially a late 30s car, it, it's not, not really all that alien to... Yeah. To what we're driving today yeah they are a um by the simplest of definitions they are a conventional automobile yeah and and yeah you're absolutely right and it, it's it's interesting and, and here's another fun subject that it would be fun to talk about with uh with uh amongst the four of us is you're right i mean the fundamental similarities are all there but you know, one of the things that, that we've done for, it'll be 10 years in 2021 at Haggerty is, is what's called the Haggerty Driving Experience, where we go around to different venues around the country and we teach young drivers how to drive manual transmission. And not only that, we teach them how to drive manual transmission in vintage cars. So kind of give them, you know, that dual experience. And it's on a closed course and, 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 and it's, it, it's meant to be introductory. This is how a clutch works. This is how you take off. I'm going to start with the clutch and um, it's slow speed, but it, it's been fascinating over the past decade of being involved in these events of witnessing 16, 17, 18 year olds. So, you know, new drivers and even just vocabulary, like young people, you don't start the car. You don't start the engine. You turn it on. Yeah. Because well, you push the button. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what they're all learning to drive in, 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 in most cases. And, and that's their yeah. only experience. And, and, and I started, because I, you know, again, we're doing this event in vintage cars. So we usually have a, uh, a 63 Corvette. My Model A has been used in a lot of them. Uh, you know, but, you know, all vintage cars. And, of course, people, as they're learning, if this is their first time, they're in, in, inevitably going to stall at some point. And so you, you talk them through, okay, start it up again. And, and they just they just blip the uh, the the ignition switch <laughs> as if you were pushing the button. Now you got a hold that so yeah. like so, it jigged, oh, and, and these are cars, like your A has the starter on the floor, right? It does, yeah. So yeah. that's even a whole other yeah. level. But uh, um, but then it's like no, no, you got to hold it till the engine starts. So then they hold it until the hold the uh, key until the engine starts. But then they overrun the starter. Yeah. So. It's got to dig into your thumb and then you got to let it go and you got to make sure you're there with the gas so that you feather the pedal. So it's, That's know. right. And, and so, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, this concept of starting the engine, this isn't there because even if, you know, you take a, uh, you know, I, my, my daily driver's a, a 2012 F-150 as far as my winter vehicle here in Northern Michigan. And yes, it has, you still stick a key into the t- ignition tumbler and turn it, but 
it's you know when you turn the key to the start position you're basically just requesting of the computer that it start the engine i mean it it does it for you you know you're, you're not going to overrun the starter or anything like that and so no fault to young people they don't have the experience of the concept of starting an engine yeah well i think that's that's an important point you just said like no fault to them it's like because that's one of the things that i've seen in in the hobby sort of my my entire uh time of being an enthusiast uh you know coming up through the 80s there was always that division on the cars that are now i'm sure are are, are quite hot you're starting to see but especially with the rise of of events like radwood uh, a lot of stuff from the the late 70s through late 90s uh, mm-hmm. A lot more popular, going for a lot bigger prices because those were the things that that we could afford, and there was that exclusivity where it was only sock hops and you know fifty seven Chevys and stuff. Oh, and those, all that stuff is cool, but you know the stuff that we have, I have direct experience with. Like I find it's it's weird that you can collect a wrapped audience just talking about the crappy beater you had <laughs> because you, you know all the ins and outs of it. And, you know, That's you know, right. people are like, how do you know this stuff? I'm like, I had to, I bought a $500 car, man. I had to put it on the road. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was a piece but, of crap. It broke all the time. Yeah. When I was, um, when I, I, I uh, turned 16 in 98 and uh, I grew up on a, in, a, in a farming family in Northern Illinois, big Ford family. I always wanted a Mustang, but I couldn't afford the Mustang that I wanted. And uh, so what I ended up with was uh, the closest thing I could even come was a 91 Mercury Cougar that had the 5.0 in it, you know. So it was it was my total poor, poor man's Mustang. Hey, it had and, that big that, formal roof line. You're good. That's right. that, you know, that's that was right. that was an MN12. I mean, you had independent rear suspension that's and everything. Right. In that. That's right. And so, uh, gosh, I guess it was three years ago now. Um, I was, <clears throat> I stumbled across, like I was not searching for it, but I stumbled across a, a trade-in in a Chrysler dealer down <laughs> in uh, north of Detroit um, of a 91 Cougar LS <laughs> with the 5.0 that had 35,000 miles on it. It had oh, never wow. been driven. Pra- I mean, practically someone, new. Yeah, someone bought this and uh, um, I, but yeah, I'll tell the story, you know, the, the, the salesperson probably listening to this, but they were asking $8,000 for it. And I called up and uh, asked to talk to the used car sales manager. And, uh, and they're like, and of course he gives you what, tells you what you would expect to hear. And, oh, it's the cleanest thing you've ever seen. And this is going to be a collector. And they said, yeah, you know, it looks great. And I said, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you $2,500. <laughs> and he of course was just, yeah that was his reaction he's just like what you know and, and i just said what this car lives it, it, this car is kind of in purgatory or lives in 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 you know this like no person's land because collectors are not seeking out 91 mercury cougars they're not rare <laughs> they're not rare and someone who is in the market for an $8,000 used car does not want something that doesn't have anti-like brakes, that does not have airbags. Yeah, so you, uh, there's one idiot out there that wants this car, and you're talking to him, and here's his <laughs> offer. And uh, so, of course, you know, he just thought I was crazy, and I thought he was crazy, and so we ended as friends. And, and about every six weeks, I would give the same salesperson a call, 
and I would reaffirm my offer. Did you sell it yet? Is it pulled <laughs> yeah. into the lot? And, and every time it was like, oh, someone from Ohio is coming up to look at it. Well, good luck. I hope you sell it. And uh, so fast forward to the to November. This is still on the lot. And of course, they had slowly started dropping the price. And, and he actually called me and says, hey, we're down to 4500 What do you think? I said, we're getting close. We're only two grand apart. And... Uh, and uh, the ending of the story is the week of Thanksgiving, I went down and picked it up. I came up $500. I bought uh-huh. it for $3,000. But I don't know if you got if the camera's going to allow, but this oh, is yeah. me at Radwood, awesome. at, at Radwood, Detroit and uh, in 2019, last year. That's with awesome. This, with this cream puff of a 91 Mercury Cougar, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Which is an example of what my first car was. I just, I just love that um, there's that room, that space that's being created for the inclusivity and for for folks to share. You know, there's the the older guys too. I found this when I was, um, you know, t- twenty twenty five years ago when I was much younger. We we had a really hacked together friend of mine had a hacked together uh, tea bucket that was not like the other tea buckets it actually mm-hmm. had a 12a rotary in it it was much smaller it was freaking terrifying <laughs> um but you parked it among all of the other uh tea buckets that were mostly built out of a, a catalog and yeah. the old guys would look at it and they say well what's that and so i you know i'm explaining like oh well i you know we needed headlights because we we're gonna drive it around here at night and it didn't have any headlights <laughs> so i had to put a relay in and so i'm just you know explaining all this stuff and the, you know so then they got to sharing and, and so that that opportunity to sort of share across generations is, is really, I think, key to the to the experience of, of older cars. And, and um, I, I hope that that we can continue to be inclusive versus, you know, some of the, the sort of walls that, that go up around stuff. I mean, I love the 60s and 70s, you know, muscle cars as much as anybody. But uh, there's there's a lot to like in any <laughs> any well, different period. And, and I think some of these recent events. So we so here at Radwood, that's what we've been talking about. Uh, I think is an excellent example of the types of events that are going to continue to thrive because yes, it is a car show, but it is it 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 really is a um, it's a I mean, cultural it, thing. It's a cultural thing, and it, it's like. Uh, Shelly and I, when we drove uh, the Cougar from Traverse City down to down to Detroit for that Radwood event, uh, you know, we we like really got into it as far as what our outfit was going to be. Oh, and, yes, you, know, so you dressed, you, yeah, oh, we totally dressed up. And by the way, I never dressed to that extreme in the nineties. Yes, you did. Oh yeah, did, did Zeke, had, the big Z Cavarici shoulder pads. Yeah, oh no, I had. I went like full, remember when it was like uh, um, you know it was like just obnoxious brand labels. Yep. So I went Jordan jeans. I went full Tommy Hilfiger. I, I had I had a pair of Tommy Hilfiger um, cut off overalls or bib overalls. So of course you know with the one strap. Yeah, one strap down. And a button-down, long-sleeve Tommy Hilfiger shirt with way too many logos on it. And Tommy socks, Tommy shoes. I mean, the only thing I didn't have was I did not have the pager in the side pocket. Right. And Shelly was dressed similarly. similarly, But uh, but it was was just fun, you know. And this is a a for-profit event, you know, that the... 
the organizers that have created it and running it, it's, you know, it's their business and, and they've been successful at it. And, you know, because so, so long for all of us growing up, the idea of a car show was you went to some local park on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, it, it was, a you know, there was the crying doll leaning against the bumper of oh. a 57 Chevy. Oh. Chantilly Lace was playing in the background. <laughs> you know, you just had, it was just like this playbook of what a car show was. And yeah, all the signs say, don't touch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't touch. All the car owners would sit in a lawn chair and match to their car all day. They'd have their, their lookbook. <laughs> Uh, here's how horrible it was when I started and here it yep. is now and the mirrors underneath and you know and that's that's fine for someone who really truly uh enjoys that aspect of it but to me I love like the Radwood events yes the cars are a lot of fun it was fun driving to the event but there's just a a light-hearted uh casualness mixed with a sense of humor and again it was more of this cultural thing um, well, it's yeah. it's less about how much the car is worth and more about the memories associated with it. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, there there right. were a lot of scruffy cars at at Radwood, and that's not not a, a pejorative. Like I like the scruffy cars, you know, because like, no, the stories are so much better. Well, and that's yeah. like right? that's, what we, that's that's what we drove. You know, I I didn't ever the the nicest cars we drove but i mean i graduated high school in 95 so the nicest stuff i got to drive was my parents cars and they were no fun you know it was a tempo <laughs> yeah. but yeah. now if i saw one i'd be like oh my god a 93 tempo gls <laughs> oh i haven't god. seen one of these in years yeah oh we had a tempo in my family <laughs> yeah we had, we had a, a oldsmobile i want to say it was in the 70s i think it was i'm trying to remember exactly when my dad bought it and it was it was mint green with a white top and white oh, yeah. leather yeah. interior. That sounds like a late seventies color. That's Supreme. right. right? That's right. And, and, Supreme, yeah. an Omega. Well, I guess that was eighties. And and yeah. no, I think it was. I think it was in the seventies. I remember yeah. crying <laughs> when he bought that car. <laughs> like physically, like actually yeah. crying. Yeah. I don't think it had anything to do with the fact that I was really tired. Um, but I remember, <laughs> I remember crying in the back seat, and then. Don't you know that that was like my my car in you know when I turned sixteen that I then had to drive uh, to high school you know with the really cool Wilton Lacrosse team players that my brother was on <laughs> you know all watching David's little sister arrive in my mint green awful Oldsmobile. We, we, had, I, we had a green seventy three Dodge Dart Sport. <laughs> but at least it was sport. And well, there was nothing sporty about sport. In 1973, <laughs> when they were trying to figure out what to do, they had to throw things like sport. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, now, to be fair, I, I know it sounded like I was making fun of the 50s-style car show, but for a long time, the people taking the cars to the car show, they were living somewhat of the similar experience as what we are experiencing going to Redwood. Um, you know, it was just, you know, the people who did remember the vehicles from the 50s and the 57 Chevys and all of that. It's just that for so long, that seemed to define what a car show was. And uh, it, it, it is neat to see that, yes, those are still existing and they serve an important purpose, but there are more opportunities and more experiences for people that like different types of cars. Well, I think, too, um, it comes back to the fact that, like, they were meant to be driven, and it's a shame to see them parked on the lawn. I like to see them out and about. That's what makes vintage racing so cool. You get to see these things getting, getting you know, used, like, 100%. And, you know, I mean, from, from your perspective, like, look, put insurance policy on it. It's just a car. Like, That's go right. enjoy it. Exactly. <laughs> you know? They're meant to be driven. Cars are happiest when they're driven. 
Um, yes, once in a while, unfortunate things happen, but it's <clears throat> that's okay. You know, there's there's a, that that's that's why the insurance side of Haggerty exists. You know, but but we'd rather see them all be driven. Well, and and one of the interesting things about Haggerty that that I learned from you is about you know sometimes when unfortunate things happen to those cars, they end up in Haggerty's possession, like that '61 Fury, and then they get restored. You know, I mean, tell us about that. You know, wait, 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 wait. Are you just like harvesting cars? No. <laughs> it, would be, it would be easy to think that. but It would uh, be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. This one has serial number one. Yeah. Um, hmm. No, uh, no what, what Sam is referring to is uh, we have, uh, this has been going on for close to a decade now. What we call an employee restoration program. So there's always at least one restoration uh, taking place at our garage in Traverse City, as well as we've got an office with about 300 employees in Golden, Colorado, and there's a garage there as well. That uh, any employee, if if they want to during the working day, can sign up and go take part in this restoration. So there are we do have skilled, trained. Uh, restoration technicians that that mentor and, and shepherd this process but the whole idea is um, you know we have an awful lot of employees that that come in and they and they don't have a car background and but every person that they're interacting with whether it's on the phone or over email this is a part of that person's life and so this is our way of introducing them into what it takes to restore and properly maintain these cars and so to what Sam was uh, referring to, over the years there have been times that we have that we have purchased a total vehicle because we use it as a training exercise. And so uh, I, I give you two examples. Uh, one of them was a, a, a '69 Camaro RS with the uh, um, I'm sorry SS with uh, the 396 in it. It was four speed. It's a beautiful car, uh, orange with a black vinyl top and. Uh, the uh, it's kind of a sad story. The owner was taking it out for its first drive in the in the springtime, and you know it's got that gauge cluster in front of the shifter in the center console. Yeah. You know, there's four gauges down there, and and he was staring at the gauges to make sure everything was okay, and was in a pretty significant accident. Ran into the back of of something else. Fortunately, this person was okay, but it totaled the car, um, and. Uh, you know, what totals a vehicle is it from an insurance standpoint, and this is true across the board, is the cost it is to repair it relative to the vehicle's value. So if there's ever any plug out there from an insurance standpoint in your collector card, do not ever underinsure because if it comes time to it being told being told, it's all based on what it's gonna cost relative to the car's value. Um, but if you know if this Camaro was a several hundred thousand dollar or a multi-million dollar vehicle with the same level of damage, you'd fix it because even if it costed five, cost 500,000 or more to fix it, if it's a multi-million dollar vehicle, it makes sense. And so we brought it in to use it as a uh, training exercise specifically for the folks in our claims team of what it takes to repair a badly damaged car. And typically what happens in a vehicle that is approaching half a century old is uh, at the time when we restored it is um, it was also had been <laughs> somewhat of an accident at another time in its life from the rear end 
It oh, so you, you, you find it? Was it poorly <laughs> repaired. Yeah. So, you know, there was nothing, you know, this is the type of car that if you drove it straight down the road, it would leave four it's... tracks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, so we had to fix it up. But, the, but those are real world situations that people in the, in the collector car space face. And so that's, a, again, that's a good learning exercise for us. And so the theory that Sam referenced, uh, this is a sad story from the other stream. It was a wonderfully restored car, someone's pride and joy. And uh, the house it lived in was a coastal home in New Jersey. And uh, Superstorm Sandy or Hurricane Sandy, which is what, five, six years ago now uh, or more. It was more flooded up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, more than that. Eight years ago. Yeah, it was flooded up um, above the door handles in salt water, you know, because it was, you know, quite with the flood surge. And so. Uh, when you, if someone asks the question, what does it take to restore a vehicle that's been submerged in salt water? And the answer is you've got to take it down to the bare body shell and which we did and put it on a rotisserie and sent it down to a company in Detroit and they dipped it, you know, put it in a chemical bath that neutralized, you know, every little speck of where wow. salt could have been. And then we rebuilt it from there. And again, it was a, it was a training exercise. So, so no, we're not in the business of harvesting someone's <laughs> fortune, but once a year, you know, seeing what does happen and, you know, we're talking several thousand examples. Um, we, we do use it as a learning uh, exercise because again, especially our claims, uh, team, they're interacting with people that are dealing with these types of situations all day long. Well, I think for the the, the claims folks too, is and and the adjusters, they have to have a good idea of what they're looking at. Which, uh, uh, you know, that's got to be a little different with the sort of varied uh, nature of of older cars as well, or or you know, the, the sort of collector vintage car market. Um, it it is, and it can get complicated, especially when it comes to sourcing replacement parts. Uh, yeah. depending on the vehicle, common vehicles, parts are readily available, rare vehicles. It, it can become a challenge. And of course you hope to find either a really good original example of whatever component you need, or when it, when it needs to happen, you, um, you pay to have the piece fabricated and, and the good news is that, that can happen. I mean, literally anything can be made. Uh, do you, do you have an example of like something unobtainium that you you managed to get made? Well, three D printing technology has really wow. really opened up a lot of avenues for that. So, um, I mean, when it comes to body panels, a skilled metal shaper can make any body panel. So you you just have to know who the good ones are. Um, but you know, 10 years ago, before 3D printing really started to become more prevalent like it is now, what became difficult was uh, various trim pieces, especially if it was interior components, you know, Bakelite or early plastics yeah. um, on rare cars. Radio you know, knobs it, and climate yeah, control. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, if a car had suffered minor fire damage, for example, and you were had to source all of these little detailed interior parts uh, that really could become troublesome and now a lot of that stuff can um, either the part itself can be 3d printed or you 3d print the part to then make the casting for, for whatever that part is so um, you know an example oh here's one that that comes to mind there was a 
uh, a client of ours that had a uh, Lincoln Zephyr. Uh, hmm. Gosh, it was a 41. It's just before they shut down. It might have actually even been a 42 model, but don't, don't, I, I could be wrong. But anyways, it was one of the last before they shut down for the wartime production of World War II. And uh, it had this very intricate um, emblem on the side, both sides of the hood. That uh, and this is it either said Lincoln or Zephyr, maybe it even said both. But uh, again, it was not available. There was not enough of these cars. There's not any companies making them aftermarket. And uh, this was a, it was custom made at a machine shop. You know, you just it, it's a uh, um, with with CAD drawings and and the uh, machinery that's there. Um, it it really is. It's opened up a lot of areas that even a decade ago were, were more challenging. Now, what's going to be interesting, if we look out 25, 30, 40 years from now, looking at today's cars with how sophisticated they are from a technology standpoint, is not so much the hardware, but the software programming that it takes to run today's cars. If someone doesn't keep it or doesn't release that programming, that'll become a challenge. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's like, who knows COBOL, right? Yeah. When they had to update, <laughs> well, right? When yeah. they had to update, well, think about all the government systems when everyone started to apply for unemployment. Yeah. Those systems were so outdated. They were literally pulling in people yeah. from retirement that right. knew COBOL. COBOL, <laughs> Fortran, yeah, all but, that but, stuff. Or right. You know, McLaren, yeah. McLaren's a great example. You know, the F1, they only built 106 of those. Wow. And, you know, it had electronic engine controls. You know, it was a, a relatively early example of that and had some pretty sophisticated electronics for the time. Yes. And, you know, McLaren has to keep a stock of old, you know, 1990s era compact laptops on hand <clears throat> just so they can run the software to interface with this thing. When they ha when the cars have to come in for service, yeah. I didn't so, know if they had to like also keep the programmers, you know, old decrepit programmers yeah. as well. <laughs> That's right, but it, it really is. Um, and, and I don't know. And maybe there are people out there that are that are thinking long term, but uh, I'm not aware of it yet. But yeah, it, at some point, people are going to be seeking out different software programming that, and especially if it was for a more mass-produced vehicle. I mean, these automakers spent millions of dollars developing. So yeah, for a no, person to recreate on their own, um, that'll be a challenge. You're right, because it's circuit boards and, and then understanding, I mean, it's just the hardware and the software, right? It's recreating the hardware where it's needed and then reprogramming the software. And yes. you're absolutely right. That's the something that we you don't have to do in a 1990s kind of car or anything else like that yes. i'm sorry if you can hear my cat i'm used to that if you know if you look in the background you can see a little gray oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so she she usually come you know if i'm on a zoom call about 3 30 4 o'clock in the afternoon she usually comes in to yell at me so yes exactly yeah. <laughs> um, so you know another area that haggerty's expanded into you know in the last decade is content production you know what it, the the automotive journalism business has been a tough one over the last yes. several years you know yes, and a yes. lot a lot of great writers have lost their jobs at, you know at some of the the old buff books and 
a lot of them have ended up working for Haggerty. You know, talk about that. Yeah, it's uh, so, you know, what is now the Haggerty Drivers Club magazine um, and, and the subscription, as far as uh, the number of people who receive each issue in their mailbox, about 650,000. Um, and then, of course, we've got the digital side of it. Uh, but, you know, this started, um, well, I've been at Haggerty for 13 years and so a little bit before that. So about 15 years ago, it literally was a quarterly newsletter that, that went out to uh, people who paid for it. It wasn't just insurance clients, but people who had what at the time was called Haggerty Plus, which was essentially a roadside assistance program in addition to the Haggerty to their insurance policy. And that newsletter grew into, uh, for a while, what was a quarterly magazine. And uh, we've increased the, the number of issues a year and, and also other publications. We, we produce what's called the Haggerty Insider. And that's all very focused on the market side of the industry. And uh, what has been an awful lot of, <clears throat> it's been fun. It's been educational for us. Uh, but what is different about the model how we have grown this is so those 650,000 people that received that magazine each issue at their home we know exactly what is in their garage <laughs> and we know exactly i mean there's no generalized readership surveys there's no you know like that it's just so that is what has been unique about uh Haggerty's content efforts uh within the automotive space and, uh, uh, and it's just, um, and, and we're going to continue to grow it. Um, we see a lot of opportunity there, but that being said, um, you know, it, it, it we, re we recognize it's been a challenging time for the larger media industry and, uh, we don't want to be the only ones, you know, we, we, uh, we think it's it's healthy and vibrant for multiple publications to still exist. Well, I think um, really the the best way for other publications to exist is you just got to help them. You got to you got to tell us where the money is so we can go <laughs> get it. <laughs> so we can it pay is, the writers. <laughs> no, but it is cool to see how Haggerty, especially in the last few years, it seems has really evolved and really and almost modernized and stayed so relevant. I mean, I, I feel like, uh, you know, in the last just even three years, really four years that it's that you guys have really expanded into the into all the right places, into, into places that people need advice, need insights, need guidance. Uh, and and it's been really exciting to see because it's it's such a it's a name that I think a lot of us have always known in the industry, but it was also, oh, if I don't have a Casa car, I don't need Haggerty services. But now it seems like really there's so much more that you guys do. How many people actually work for Haggerty? Because you threw out that 300 person number in Golden. Was that part of RPM or is that separate? Uh, no, so we have, so globally, we're just shy of 1,500 employees. Wow. So I did about, not realize it was that large. Yeah, about 900 in Michigan uh, between Traverse City and Ann Arbor. We ha and we have an office of about 300 employees in Golden, Colorado. We have a relatively new office in Dublin, Ohio, and uh, uh, an office in uh, north of Toronto, an office uh, north of London in the UK, and then a small team in Germany. 
And uh, so, yeah, that's just, that's kind of, so yeah, 1500 people. And then there's a handful of people in home base offices throughout North America. Right. In specific territories. And of course, now we, we, we find ourselves in, in this current state where we've kind of, everyone's kind of proved to the world that you can work remotely. So that, that footprint's probably going to change. Uh, you know, won't just be limited to where we have <clears throat> actual physical real estate. Um, but, you know, to your point earlier, Rebecca, is uh, um, when I first joined the company, it was it was a very conscious decision uh, that was on the table because, you know, Haggerty's business, or it, it's, it's got its start in insurance, being this niche insurance industry, filling a need that wasn't there at the time. And the company was at the point where there was kind of this decision do you explore other avenues in the insurance space? Mm -hmm. So get into uh, daily transportation vehicles, get into homeowners, get into other areas, or in the decision, and I'm very thankful for it, was, no, we're going to stay intensely focused in the enthusiast space. And every decision is going to be focused around helping people get the most enjoyment out of cars that they choose to want to have fun with. And uh, so, you know, it was that type of mindset that, that uh, led itself to what is now the Haggerty Price Guide or the Haggerty Evaluation Tools Online to grow the magazine, to do um, a lot of the other stuff that, that Haggerty's done. It's all been around the enthusiast space and, and you know, and, and, and let, there's many, many companies that are focused in the standard insurance market and they're good at what they do. That's, that's not our interest. Right, that's so cool. I love that. Yeah. So, no, it's just been, I mean, for a car nut like me, it, it's, I mean, I went to school <laughs> to restore cars and, and that's my, that's my hobby is, you know, I love tinkering in the garage in the evenings and weekends and, and, uh, but yeah, this is a, it's been a great company to be with. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, I just, I have guys, one or two more questions okay, though. And um, so I do understand that you've bought a rather interesting house that was owned by a woman that liked red cars <laughs> yes. do you want to tell us a little bit about your the <laughs> the the remnants of the wall of plaques <laughs> oh my yes um, i dug deep big I, guy <laughs> yes you did that's impressive yes, these, these journalists gotcha questions that is impressive <laughs> I, would, I would love to hear the path they got to that. No, it's we, we can't disclose our sources. So. We can't disclose our sources, but it was one text message. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, so no, I, um, it's, well, okay, this this will explain some, some of uh, the, the problems that run around my head. So, um, so yeah, so uh, it'll be two years in November, purchased a, a house that I moved into, and, and uh, the property, the house was built in 91, but what, what motivated this purchase was, uh, it has a pole barn and a 30 by 40 pole barn, which at the time I thought, oh, this will be perfect. It's all I'll ever need. I'll well, never so, fill that up. Oh, it's still up. Well, I tell you what, I wish it was bigger. Yeah. <laughs> into it, but, uh, we're, we're building another one. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, of course, when I was touring, the, and the house was, it was very well cared for, um, but it was, it was outdated. It was as it was built in 91. And, and uh, like, I like, to tell people, picture your grandmother building a house in 91, and that's what it looks like. <laughs> and uh, But when I was in the basement taking a tour, there's just a, a small part of the basement is somewhat finished with drywall. 
And I have never seen more nails in a wall and nail holes. And I'm like, what in the world did they have down here? But, you know, whatever, didn't think anything of it. Well, I didn't find out until well after the fact that purchased the house and spent six months doing cosmetic remodeling, all the stuff just to get a pole barn that's too small now. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I ended up meeting uh, the son of the the elderly couple that, that I had purchased it from. And, and he's a, he's a car guy. Um, um, but yeah, it was, and it was his mother more so than his father. They had 12 red Fords. Oh my God. At once or like in succession? <laughs> no, all at once, all, all at once. once. And all of the nails and the nail holes in that room in the basement was, and they, every weekend, in the summer months, they were going to some type of car show, some type of cruising or whatever. And, you know, they were in it for the trophies and the plaques. And, and, wow. and so that's what all those nails were. It was every plaque, every trophy, every, for all of those 12 cars. And I have since been to, uh, so the son, he, he purchased the majority of the vehicles from his parents. And, and so th- this collection of red Fords still exists. And it's, and, and, it, and it's an interesting variety. I mean, it's a first-generation uh, Mustang, a handful of Thunderbirds, uh, uh, a Galaxy to, uh, you know, a 95 Thunderbird Super Coupe. You know, supercharged, uh, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever year the Mach 1 Mustang was in the early 2000s, 03, 04, something Yeah, 03. Like yep. Yeah, so all, all red, you know, and, uh, but anyways, he and his parents are still alive. Uh, they're quite elderly and assisted living, but he, as a tribute to them, he organized all of those plaques and all those trophies and hung them in his storage building. And I saw, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm like, wow. I didn't, I didn't know there's this many plaques could exist. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Yeah. That's cool. I, yeah, no. So anyways, yeah. So this this place has a, a legacy <laughs> of, 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 uh, of fun old cars. That's awesome. Well, mine, are not all the, mine are not all the same color though. I can that. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, this is fun. This is yeah. fun. It's, uh... Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Jonathan. This has been great. Absolutely. No, I'd love to come back. There's all sorts no, that... of fun topics the four of us could talk about. Absolutely. Excellent. We'll definitely have you back. All right. That would be Sounds great. Good. All right. We'll see you all next time. Hopefully, we'll see you in person here at some point, too. No. Yeah, right. hopefully. Well, so that about does it for episode 166 of Wheel Bearings. Uh, you know where to find us, so keep the feedback coming, and we'll see everybody next time. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.